and welcome to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Shannon Paulus. I'm a writer at Slate where I cover health and wellness. This season, we're talking about the world of running with athletes, coaches, and people who do all manner of things to help others go for runs. This week, we're talking to Thomas Panic, the CEO of Guiding Eyes for the Blind, an organization that gives people with visual impairments highly trained dogs that can help them navigate the world or run through it. Thomas created a running guides program to train dogs to take people on runs. He's also the first person to complete a half marathon with the help of a relay team of dogs. I really enjoyed talking to him, and his own guide dog, Blaze, sat in on the interview. What is your name, and what do you do? My name is Thomas Panic, and I'm president and CEO of Guiding Eyes for the Blind. We're a guide dog school that provides guide dogs to people with vision loss. And you also help dogs learn how to run. Uh, we do. Actually, the dogs know how to run. <laughs> they're running creatures. They love to run. They're, they're made to run, and they run for fun. We just hang on and uh, train them to guide at a faster working pace. So something that comes very naturally to them. You know, we humans try to run. They're built to run. And so you recently ran a half marathon with a relay team of guide dogs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, I had an opportunity to run with uh, three wonderful dogs. Wesley, who was a big black lab, and uh, he woke me up in the morning snoring like a bullfrog and sort of said, we're going to do this. We started in uh, Prospect Park, and we made our way to the relay point. It was about five miles in, picked up another dog named Waffle, sweet little yellow lab. Uh, a lot of energy, and uh, over that Manhattan Bridge and all the way into Central Park with my own guide dog, Gus, who uh, retired at the finish line. So happy to say we made it. And so that race, that's a pretty crowded race. You're running through the streets of New York. There are tons of people. You can hear cars. How does a dog stay calm during that run? Well, you know, Guiding Eyes for the Blind has uh, guide dogs that are first and foremost bred for health and temperament. And in order to be a guide dog, they really do choose their job. You know, like people, they are uh, selected based on what they enjoy doing. So we wouldn't have selected a dog if it didn't like running down the middle of 42nd Street with a wagging tail and uh, sort of a smile on their face. And the dogs that do make it to that level of training, only about a third of them make it. Uh, the other two-thirds either go into other service dog careers, uh, detection work, or even a family pet. So we're really talking about the dogs that enjoy that kind of work and the work pressure and the ability to you know, navigate around all of that chaos and crowds. So that's essentially uh, how they got to be. Um, but it's still a high bar. It's a, you know, a lot of pressure for a dog to uh, guide a blind person, you know, through that kind of environment. But we do that every day. We have more than a thousand graduates out there that are working with their guide dogs. And when class comes on the campus in our Yorktown Heights Training Center, people who are blind come from all over the um, United States and Canada. Their last day is to be able to travel through Manhattan. So every dog has to have that ability. Right. So that sounds like the skill between being a regular service dog who can take you for a walk down 42nd Street <laughs> is kind of that same skill of focus and, you know, not running after a burger stand or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think it is the same baseline skill set. Very well said. And 
it's uh, for a running guide, it's really choosing a dog out of all those dogs that say, you know, I want to work at a faster pace. You know, a dog's natural working pace is a human's jogging pace. So if you think about the physiology of a dog, they are, you know, they have a hundred more bones than we humans do. Obviously, they've got four paws and they've got powerful hind legs and, you know, they're really low center of gravity. Compare that to us humans, we're tall, you know, we've got these big toes, we keep on falling forward and our arms flailing in the air wildly. I mean, you know, to, to them, we look like, I don't know, uh, clowns basically <laughs> running down the street. But, you know, for them, running is a very natural thing. It's what they enjoy doing. I mean, if you, uh, you know, watch a dog and you let them free, they're going to run and uh, they'll run into the neighbor's yard and chase around and find another dog to run with. I mean, if you ran into your neighbor's yard and started chasing your neighbor around in a circle, <laughs> some would say call the police, right? So it's what they love to do. And it's just capturing that energy. And that willingness and that desire to run and putting them with a person who's blind and setting that blind person free. And uh, that's what that race was all about is saying it could be done. And, uh, you know, very proud to say that Guiding Eyes for the Blind team stood behind the effort and got those dogs on location, trained, ready and willing, able to, uh, to guide me. I had the easy part. I just had to hold the harness and uh, follow the dog. Does the dog pick the pace? The dog does set the pace. And uh, Wesley, uh, the black lab I talked about earlier, you know, he was pacing from Prospect Park, not so far away from the studio here. He was running, you know, in the 8 to 8.30 range, and that was his comfort zone. And Waffle picked up the pace uh, by large margins. She was in the sevens, high sixes. Uh, which is fast. High you know? sixes. Yeah. That's <laughs> um, she's fast and that's not even her maximum. So she's a little sports car. And uh, when she merged onto the um, Manhattan Bridge, it was like, you know, she was merging onto the Le Mans or something. She was just, <laughs> whoof. and, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, we got so much momentum going down the Manhattan Bridge on the other side of the span. You don't realize until you walk these New York bridges how steep they are on both sides, but uh, you do get some momentum on the downhill. We were in probably in the 630 range, minute per mile pace, maybe even a little bit faster than that. And then we had to take a very sharp turn to the right, and I felt the harness go around, and we were going so quickly that we spun around. It was like spun out. And then she sat down, and she said, oh, did I do good? Did I do good? So I gave her a treat, and she goes, okay, I'll get back on the course now. So <laughs> it was, uh, and so she was faster, and Gus was slower. You know, Gus was my seven-year-old guide dog, and he was guiding through Central Park, which was actually the most complex part of the route once you get into lower Manhattan, expecting the dogs to be able to know where to go, know where to turn, and sort of navigate through the chaos of the crowds cheering. Uh, the funniest thing is I didn't know when I would cross the finish line. I mean, you don't teach a dog the finish line, right? right. So, so he's just going to keep going or is he going to eventually stop? But, uh, but I could hear people uh, shouting his name. He was wearing a very specially designed vest. Uh, New York Roadrunners were fantastic. And uh, his race bib was printed on his vest and uh, had his name Gus on it instead of the number. So I heard people yelling, yeah, go Gus, you're almost there, you're almost there. And so that's how I knew the finish line was coming. What does a vest for racing look like? And how is that different from a normal dog vest? Well, traditionally, if uh, people have seen service dogs or guide dogs, a guide dog traditionally has a leather vest. It almost looks like a horse and buggy days. It has a, a steel handle that goes to the back and it has a belt buckle that uh, buckles onto the dog's belly. And it sort of sits on top of the shoulders. And the person who's blind holds on to that and gets all of their tactile feedback about where the dog is going through that leather vest. 
or uh, harness, let's say. The Running Vest is very different. Great, wonderful organization out in Portland, Oregon, Rough Wear helped design this thing together with Guiding Eyes for the Blind called the Unifly. And essentially what it is, is it's like running clothes for the dog. It goes around the uh, dog, doesn't restrict the shoulders, kind of looks like a life vest for a dog or a va- avalanche rescue vest. On top of it is a ski binding boot. Anybody who skis knows how their boot clicks into the ski binding. That's on top of the back. And on top of that is a ski pole. And the pole is about the length of an umbrella, let's say. And on the end is a handle that I hold on to. In this case, it was 3D printed in my hand because it's a lot of miles uh, to do holding on to something. And that's the only feedback I get for the running course. You know, imagine like closing your eyes and trying to find a refrigerator in your apartment or running down, you know, 13 miles through New York City, America's biggest city. And you've got so many obstacles and I don't know what they are. I don't know if that's a pedestrian or if that's a light post or you know, another runner slowing down. All I feel is this pole in my hand attached to this vest and the dog essentially very smoothly moves left to right and it's almost like flying. Um, you feel the the yaw and the, and, the, and the handle and you sort of feel it go left and right and the roll and the pitch, just like you would sort of flying an airplane. But you're moving along at a steady clip and sort of like dancing. You're really following the footwork of the dog and you know that a running dog is dialed in when your footfall is perfectly in sync. That sounds so, so fun. <laughs> it um, is a lot of fun. So you worked with this brand to design those specially for, for this purpose? Yes. So the running vest is designed specifically for the purpose of running, but we've seen graduates adapt that vest for regular guide work. And it's it's lightweight. It's uh, it's really incredible design. It took a lot of really thought. And I have to give credit to a gentleman named Timothy Gorbold, who is out in Portland. He was an aerospace engineer, joined uh, Rough Weather Dog Company and said, you know, we want to help you guys. And they do a lot of avalanche work where dogs are going and, you know, have a load-bearing harness. And we said, you know, we want to make something that really is comfortable for the dog, doesn't restrict the shoulders, can be washed because, you know, you want to wash those things after a while. And also really gives the feedback. And this is what took a lot of effort. The blind person's feedback through the harness handle is all we get. So it had to be uh, sort of durable enough to give us feedback and yet flexible enough to uh, mesh with the biomechanics of the dog. So we actually went up to MIT and asked some students to take this up as a project. And the Open Style Lab up at MIT helped design kind of how the biomechanics of the dog meet the human. So we, sh- we move our arms back and forth. I was joking about earlier, but what, we, what the dog does, is it's a parallel plane. So the dog is essentially moving on a horizontal plane and we're, you know, moving our arms back and forth. So you're trying to Put those two things together. So there's a very nice hinge on the harness handle that allows for that movement. And yet I can still feel where the dog is. So it's really an ingenious design. And again, it's like running clothes for the dog. And the boots, of course, uh, when you have a lot of salt in the city or you've got heat on the concrete during the summertime, uh, just like our feet is protecting their paws and making sure that it's still comfortable enough for the dog. I noticed something really incredible about the boots. You know, if you put 
booties on your dog for the first time, put a boot on your dog, they'll probably do a little bit of Scooby-Doo and not really want to walk or try to chew them off. Uh, our dogs have been massaged from the time that they were born, so they're really accustomed to being touched and having things on their body in preparation of being guide dogs. Our puppy raisers do a great job. They're volunteers who volunteer to raise these dogs in their home, and then they give them away to somebody like me who can't see. And those boots, when the dog wears them, I thought they would go slower. I thought, oh, you're going to wear these shoes. You're going to go slower. They actually went faster with the shoes because they were more comfortable and less conscious about what they might step on during the race. So it really did help keep them on pace. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, a lot of dogs act like they're stuck in concrete or something or jello. <laughs> You've seen that. Yeah. Yes, it's very funny, but yeah. it doesn't seem very effective for running. <laughs> what does a dog running shoe look like? Well, uh, <laughs> the half marathon was St. Patrick's Day, so they were green. And uh, the running shoe, again, uh, was a, looks like a boot. It goes just over on the front paws. Labradors have these uh, dew claws or thumbs that they have, and they hit the ground when they're running at running pace. And it just sort of goes right over there. And the best way I can describe it is if you thought about like a doggy wearing boots. Uh, they're size two, so <laughs> two and a half to three. Three was Wesley, so he was the big feet. Uh, you know, he had the big feet in the crew. And uh, they're just adorable. I mean, if you've ever had a toddler, they look a lot like toddler shoes. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. When was the first time you went for a run with a guide dog? So the first time I ever went for a run with a guide dog, uh, a formerly trained guide dog was Gus. And I did that uh, back in 2015. And it was a local park, and we didn't have a harness design, so I took a cane and I taped it to the back of the dog's <laughs> harness. And I probably looked pretty silly, but we were just wondering if this could be done. And a couple of my teammates over at Guiding Us for the Blind worked with me to say, is this even practical or possible? Uh, and that was the very first time, and, uh, and it was a pretty incredible feeling. Uh, first of all, you got to trust that dog. There has to be that you know, bond of loyalty and trust. It's one thing to attach yourself a dog, but you're not going to go very quickly unless you really trust that that being is looking out for your well-being. What does that experience feel like compared to running with a human guide? Well, look, human guides are great when I decide that I'm not in the mood to run or I'm in the mood to run or I feel great that morning or in the evening I want to go for a run. I've got to call up a friend who also wants to run, is in the same mood to run, uh, is near nearby enough to run and is, you know, is able, willing and ready. And so I run more than 20 marathons that way. But, you know, running with a human guide is kind of a contact sport. <laughs> you get your lefts and rights mixed up. And, you know, when you're doing a long distance race, it's like having a backseat driver. 
you know, telling you what to do every step of the way. Three, two, one, left, or three, two, one, right, or stop. No, I meant right. No, I meant left. And before you know it, you're either bumping into something or tripping. And it's wonderful. Human guides volunteering to help a blind runner and to help a blind runner in a long distance race has been sort of tried and true. And it's a great partnership. But I've always had guide dogs for more than 25 years. I've always felt that these guide dogs are so capable and so able to guide us safely. Never a bump or a scrape with a guide dog. You know, this is what they do. And they love to run and I love to run. And so why not let them run free and do it safely? So that's something that Guiding Eyes for the Blind embarked on with the Running Guides program. We've got a great team of people. We've got two full-time runners that go into the kennel and find the dogs that are willing and able to run and pace them and see, you know, what they're like. And so during the training process, it's just a matter of sort of finding out which dogs left to run, pairing that with people who either aspire to run or uh, our runners are ready. So we have everything from Paralympic athletes to people who say, hey, you know what? I want to run one day. Never been allowed to run independently with my guide dog. Let's make this happen. So when you're going for just a training jog with Gus or another guide dog, do you follow a prescribed route that the dog is familiar with or is the dog able to just take you out into the world? Well, a guide dog is able to take you out in the world anywhere you want to go. Mm-hmm. And so it's looking for curbs, uh, elevator buttons, escalators. They're taught to target things. Mm-hmm. And a running guide, we really emphasize the safety of it. So if you have a favorite running path or something with less traffic or it's a you know, a track at your local uh, school, those are the type of environments that the running guides really enjoy because they can just focus on the running. Uh, We don't recommend, you know, picking up the harness and running down 42nd Street. That was a very unusual uh, occasion. And we've had graduates from the Running Guys program running in 5K races and 10K races and really enjoying being with the dog. But it should be a familiar route or a route that's well marked for runners. And that way we can keep it safe and everybody happy. How do you find out what a dog's pace is going to be? So you don't, you know, stick someone with a dog who's going to do a 630-minute mile when they're not expecting it. Um, We spend a lot of time. We have field reps located throughout the United States who meet with a person who's blind, and they say, I think I want a guide dog. And they will call this thing called Juno. Essentially, they walk with the harness in their hand without the dog, so it's the invisible dog. And we will take the human's walking pace. We all have a preferred walking pace. Some of us are casual strollers. Some of us are, you know, always needing to get to that next place. And so we generally walk as humans between, you know, somewhere between two and four and a half miles an hour. You get to five miles an hour, you're starting to jog. And so uh, we do match dogs every day with people based on their walking pace. The Running Guides program, we have two people I mentioned earlier, uh, actually two retired New York Police Department uh, detectives uh, who decided to take up their second careers running, and they take the dogs out in the kennel, uh, Nick and Mike, and they pace them. They say, okay, this dog's name is Wish, this one's Dream. I mentioned those two because they recently did uh, evaluate those two, and let's see how quickly they'll want to go. And once they determine this is a 10-minute mile dog or this is a 12-minute mile dog or this is a 7-minute mile dog, we'll then look at who's coming into class and what their pace set is and what their preference is, and we'll match the two. So it's really about uh, finding people. Just like if you're in a running club or uh, if you are a uh, you know distance runner, you always have your sort of pace set and your goal. 
We want to make sure the dog is well matched and enjoys the running. We never uh, push the dog to go faster than it would otherwise run. That's something that the dog sets the pace. And uh, they've, they've also got a lot of fun. We have booties for them, essentially running shoes that they wear when they're out and about to protect their feet. And hydration is a big part of it, making sure that just like humans, they're able to get their water and a little extra food if they're running more miles and a vet check. So we have veterinarians on staff that make sure that the dogs are ready to go and, uh, you know, sort of doing it safely. I'll tell you one thing during the, uh, half marathon, we did a vet check and uh, the heart rate of the dog barely increased. It was my heart rate that was racing. <laughs> um, for them, you know, they're trotting along fairly evenly. It's really us humans that uh, have to put in that full effort. How does a dog train for a race? So uh, dogs condition just like we humans do based on distance. So I have Blaze with me. He's at my feet. He's a yellow lab. He's just a happy fellow. And he's been running with me, I graduated in June with him after, after uh, Gus retired at the finish line. And, you know, Blaze and I have been working our way up in the miles. So we started with, you know, a mile run and then we did a couple more miles. And, you know, now we're able to pretty much run together at whatever mile distance that we're in the mood to do. But I always let him set the mileage. The other day we went on, so let's do six miles. And, you know, we took a little bit of a break and he did another another five miles on top of that. So it really just depends on, you know, the mood. And when your dog starts to slow down, you say, okay, we're going to stop now. Uh, you never want to push them past their ability. But believe it or not, dogs, as I mentioned, they really love to run. You know, if we humans were born to run, you've heard that expression, humans are born to run, like Chris McDougall and a few other people have claimed that. I, 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 I think he's wonderful, Chris, but to be honest with you, dogs were born to run and they were born to run free. So a lot of this program is just giving them the ability to get out there and do that and sort of giving them that exercise. The, the least healthy thing you can do with a pet dog is not to exercise them. Just like humans, that's when they start to see joint problems and other arthritic problems. It really has to do with making sure that they get that outlet, whether it's going to a dog park or taking them on a walk at a walking leisurely pace. You know, they're usually pulling because they're trying to get ahead of you because, again, their natural pace is a jogging pace. So we teach them how to heal, stay at our heels. But it really is healthy for a dog to get out there and move and run and, uh, and be active. Yeah, I was thinking when I was preparing for this interview, I have a little beagle mix. She's 15 pounds. <laughs> and I've tried to take her on like jogging runs, which she doesn't like, but she will sprint. So if we go to the park and like sprint for a minute, walk, sprint for a minute, walk. Yeah, yeah the sporting breeds like the retrievers and the spaniels, you know, those are the ones that are sort of Olympic swimmers from the time they're born. And of course, as we look at the different breeds of dogs, you know, one very interesting thing about dogs that people know, humans, we have 23 chromosomes, dogs have 39. So they're more flexible, they're more diverse, and you get all kinds of dogs and all kinds of sizes and shapes. And, you know, like your beagle, uh, they might enjoy a quick dash as opposed to, you know, more of like the track star, do that 100-yard dash as opposed to the sporting breeds, which might be more capable of running a long-distance race like a marathon. So I wouldn't recommend taking any dog out there for this kind of activity. I mean, <laughs> when I say all dogs, you know, love to run, it is true, but uh, but of course there are exceptions by breeds and by dog. But uh, it is something that sort of universally dogs enjoy doing. And I'm glad to hear that she gets out there and that you let her free. Yeah, I do not think she would appreciate doing a half marathon, though. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> 
what kinds of support do the dogs need during the race? Like humans stop for Gatorade and, you know, gels. <laughs> what is like the dog equivalent of stopping for a gel? Um, well, it, so they have treats that they get. And my dogs love what's called Charlie Bears. Uh, and they're essentially almost like a cracker that I feed them uh, throughout the race. And it's it's really a positive reinforcement. We use, you know, Guiding Eyes for the Blind, we use a lot of positive reinforcement in our training. So when they do something correct or right, we have a keyword, which is yes. And so we'll say yes, and we'll treat them with a Charlie Bear. So we're essentially giving them that positive reinforcement. There are also calories in those treats. So uh, as as we were going through the race, when Waffle, for example, got back in, got that treat, get, got her treat back on the course, she's getting some food. And the other thing we do is water is incredibly important, just like with humans, depending on the temperature of the race day, you want to make sure that your dog is cool and has plenty of water available to them. So uh, our dogs would stop at the water stops. And so, for example, in that case, Waffle stopped at seven mile mark right off the FDR. And uh, I pulled out a bowl, I had a collapsible bowl with me and uh, took the cups, dumped it in there and uh, she drank as much as she wanted to. And then once she was ready to say, okay, I've had enough, we, we move on. So just like humans, hydration and a little bit of food. If anybody has a great business idea, come up with a dog gel. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. How did you get into running marathons in the first place? Well, that's a good question. I ran cross country in high school and I was losing my vision in my 20s. You know, your, your eyes have these two components to them. They have rods and cones and rods help you see things in the dim light and, and uh, the cones help you see, you know, your TV in full vivid detail or your phone. And I noticed that the rods were starting to go and I couldn't see at night at first. And then my cone started to deteriorate. And essentially, Running was the only sport I could do. I couldn't play football or baseball. I'd get whacked in the nose or, you know, tackled. And so I thought, okay, I can run, but I just have to follow the runner in front of me. And so that was my trick. And nobody could understand this guy never comes in first place, even though he's pretty fast. And my coach would say, why didn't you come in first? And I'd say, you know what? I never told anybody. So, uh, so I started running more and more. And in a marathon environment, there's a lot of people. I would just choose somebody with a bright colored shirt and I'd follow them. And eventually that didn't really work too well. I was in Chicago Marathon and uh, I was going into this dark area under McCormick Place, if anybody knows Chicago. And I, I ran right into a stake, which was in the middle of the road. And I said, I shouldn't be doing this anymore. So I stopped running for a long, long time. And then I was hearing about human guides and how effective a human guide can be. And so I started, like anybody, started with a short race, like a 5K, then I did a 10K, then I said, I think I can do a half, but I'm not quite sure. Then I did a half with human guides, and eventually I uh, said, I got to qualify for 
you know, for Boston, because that's the pinnacle of being able to run. I ran five Boston marathons in a row uh, wow. and, uh, you know, individually impaired division uh, did incredibly well. And so uh, really relying on human guides has been my my thing. And I, I think I, I would call it running through blindness. You know, blindness is very hard. It's a you know, darkening world. It's a narrow tunnel for people with uh, visual impairment like me who lose their sight and their peripheral vision. And, you know, trying to stay positive, trying to get out there every day, trying to do something uh, with other people. All these things are incredibly important, but there's an even more important reason. And that is that uh, if we look at blindness from a population perspective and vision health from a population perspective, Blindness has a, a lot of issues that go along with it uh, in terms of comorbidity. So if you're blind, you unfortunately will have other chronic ailments that go along with that because you're not moving as much, you're not as active. So my passion is to help other people who lose their vision stay active and stay fit. Uh, it's incredibly important. And uh, I just happen to find marathons to be that outlet, whether it's swimming or biking or just engaging in some physical activity. And now with these running guide dogs, uh, with guiding eyes, it's possible to, uh, to do it anytime, walk out my front door. And uh, we have, you know, more than 75 people that have these running guides now that, uh, that are able to be free. What did it feel like after that Chicago Marathon when you had to say, okay, I need to stop doing this for now? Well, you know, I, I think one of the things is sort of accepting your fate and saying, okay, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. And, you know, you sort of give up. And you, you reach that low point where you say, this is something I love to do, but I can't do it anymore. And, you know, always takes a very special catalyst, whether it's a person or something in your life to say, hey, you can do this. And so you, you sort of give up what you love. And I think that's really, really hard to say, okay, I'm not going to be running anymore. I'm not able to do it. I'm just stopping. And that's a place where you shouldn't stay very long, no matter what your situation is. You know, the idea would be, okay, that may be your fate, but let's figure out how you can continue to be active and, and get through it. And it's like anybody's story who overcomes adversity. You know, you shouldn't stop in that place and just say, I'm done, which I did. I did for 10 years. I said, I'm not going to run, you know, any marathons, I'm not going to run anymore. But the, the nice thing is that once you have that opportunity to, uh, to get back into it, I think you do it with even more passion because you realize what you've lost. So, you know, now with more than 20 marathons under my belt uh, and looking forward to New York this year, I think it's wonderful to be able to uh, to stay active. I'm 50 this year. It's the 50th uh, running of the New York Marathon, and you'll see me there. Oh, nice. <laughs> what did it feel like to run that first race with a guide human again? Well, with the guide human, I think running that first race was very special, you know, giving me the direction and the feedback and the verbal cues of where things are uh, was very meaningful. You know, I, I would say that running a marathon is not an easy thing, and so to have a human guide you and take care of you and tell you where things are. It was, I will, for a blind guy, I'm going to say it was eye-opening. <laughs> and what's your plan for running the uh, New York City Marathon this fall? Well, I think this fall uh, we're really looking at Guiding Eyes for the Blind, having a team and going into being able to. We're charity. We are 100% funded by donations. So people give selflessly to somebody they don't even know. And so we'll run a team into New York to help raise money so that someone who's blind can have a dog. And I hope to, uh, to be able to raise enough money to give somebody a running guide dog and hopefully uh, have them meet that dog at the end of the race. Oh, nice. That sounds really lovely. <laughs> so, 
are you planning on running with a human guide? Are you going to bring the guide dogs out for the marathon? Well, that's a good question. I've been asked that question a lot. I I think it's not about me anymore. I think it's about getting other people uh, after the half marathon to really be fit and active. But stay tuned. We shall see. Uh, I think that, you know, it's never been done before. The 5K was never done before. The half marathon was never done before. And uh, one of the things we're very careful about is the health and well-being of the dogs. And a marathon is too long of a race for any dog. So you'd have to put multiple dogs on the course guiding you through that length of a distance. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I have an incredible partnership with the New York Roadrunners, great organization that really stepped up to the plate. And, you know, there was a, there was a time in my lifetime that women were not allowed to run marathons. There was a time that wheelchairs were not allowed to participate. There was a time that ambulatory athletes were not allowed to participate in marathons, all in my lifetime, if you can believe that. So I think this is another point of inclusion and including people who are blind, being able to run with their dog. And New York is the only place that has accepted that to date. And I hope other other roadrunners around the country and world, in fact, will recognize that a dog, a guide dog is an extension of my being, just like a wheelchair or um, any other prosthetic. And so I can't even walk from here to the door without him. And so I think that it's just a matter of pushing the boundaries safely and making sure that the dog is safe and that I'm safe and continuing to show people that this is possible. And so, you know, my dream has been, you know, to be able to do a marathon with the dogs, but we got to do it in the right way. Was it hard to get New York Roadrunners on board for the half marathon? It was. It was very difficult to explain to them that, you know, history is wrong, that conventional wisdom that you should run with a guide dog, period, was okay. And so it was hard to convince, um, you know, my own trainers to say, you've been doing this since 1965, and some of our trainers are the most professional guide dog trainers in the world, but just to say, you know, let's try this. And so... I think it's bucking conventional wisdom and saying, you know, this can be done safely. Let's prove that it can be done safely. So, you know, you get you get the obvious silly questions like, what do you have to do if the dog has to go to the bathroom on course? Well, what do you have to do if a human has to go to the bathroom <laughs> on course? You know, what happens if we have to cancel the race for some reason? We need to, you know, you need to get in the subway. Well, our dogs work the subways every day. Really? You know, it's just like explaining how capable these dogs are and proving the concept. And so I think, um, you know, being able to to do it and to prove it started with a five-mile race through Central Park, the, the New York kickoff race a couple of years back, and then working your way up to saying a half marathon is possible. And since then, it's been a great partnership. But you know, when you're trying to give, convince hearts and minds that this is something that's safe for the dog and human, the first thing you do is, okay, this guy is blind. He's going to do what? <laughs> so, and you have to sort of explain, okay, here's how it's going to work. And I'm sure that's been the case since the beginning of time in terms of participation and inclusion. You're going to do what with a wheelchair or a push rim? Or, you know, why do you want to run? Well, because this is who I am. And it's just a matter of saying, you know, let me free and I'll show you what I can do. And we did it in two hours, 21 minutes. So it sounds like one major thing that races all over can do is start allowing guide dogs and working with guide dogs to run races. Are there any other major things that you would like to see happen in running so it can be more inclusive? I think that, you know, first of all, running is such an individual sport. And I would like to see, I had a a young man come to me who was blind with his parents. And they told me that, you know, this sort of inspired the coach of the school 
to say, okay, you can run. And we do a lot of work with the New York Armory on Washington Street and just kind of getting out there and bringing awareness to, you know, kids running. And the coach said, well, you can run the straights, but you can't run the turns because you're blind. So that child was running, you know, 40 yards at a time. And so after they saw the uh, the race and a half marathon, they said, you know, go around the turns. It's okay. So I, I think it's a matter of just telling people that, you know, no matter what your disability is, it's that age-old story of kind of pushing the boundaries and saying, it's okay. We, look, we understand safety. We understand that. But don't sit someone on the bench just because they're different than you are. You know, give them a chance, see what they can do. And I smile every time somebody in the race said, I, I, wait a second, a dog just beat me. Like, how does that happen? You know, so, and not only a dog, but there's somebody blind who's beating me. Like, they try to keep up. But, you know, it's like, it, it's about ability. It's not about disability. And in this case, what I'd hope is that people would see that uh, people who are blind are just as capable and maybe sometimes a little faster. Cool. Yeah. And I think it's awesome that you were able to develop the right gear for this, that it's sometimes it's just a matter of having the right tool. I think it's a matter of having the right tools, the right gear. Uh, Again, this Unifly harness is fantastic. Uh, People with the right attitude standing by your side. It takes teamwork. It's not just me. As I mentioned, it's somebody waiting at the five mile mark. I had Nick, Ben, Jolene and Mike, you know, all guiding ice team members ready to go and uh, had the dogs ready to go, the boots on. Uh, and just doing teamwork, having the right gear, and really having the right partnership with New York Roadrunners. Everything came together. The stars aligned, I like to say. And in this case, the dog star aligned. So we've been talking about dogs and running specifically, but you do more than just that. What does an average day at the office look like? Oh, there is no average day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so as president of Guiding Eyes for the Blind, my work is geared towards making sure that we have the financial resources to provide guide dogs to people at no cost. It takes a lot of donations and donors and supporters and volunteers coming together. We have more than uh, 1,500 volunteers that raise the dogs. Uh, That's a very special thing to do. We have a genetics program, a canine development program, a specialized training program, which helps people with multiple disabilities who might have a balance challenge or uh, deafblind individuals that are getting our guide dogs. So it's working with the community at large to all come together to do something good. So a typical day may be meeting with someone who potentially wants to support the organization, or it could mean taking a dog out for a run just to see if that dog is going to be capable for somebody and working with the team on that. So a typical day could mean meeting with a donor, a supporter of the organization, or a potential uh, volunteer or a puppy raiser who wants to get involved with the organization. It could mean meeting with a corporate partner, you know, looking at the financials, and it could also mean getting on a track and, you know, individually running with dogs to see if they're all set. So it's a whole lot of different things, but it's really just uh, getting the team in place and seeing what the vision is moving forward. For example, you know, what's next? This time we did running guides and we have a specialized training program. Uh, What else can we do with these wonderful creatures, these guide dogs, and how can we work together to make that happen so that we meet and help somebody that otherwise wouldn't have that opportunity? Uh, whether they're blind, deafblind, or have an additional disability, these dogs are so capable. And so we're always looking, you know, how can we, how can we uh, help the dog reach its maximum potential to assist somebody, not only as a guide dog, but uh, potentially a guide dog plus. What is your dream plus? I think the, uh, the dream that I would have is 
right now we have a waiting list of about 400 people that are waiting for these dogs and we're able to serve about 165 to 175 people and so imagine if you know you wanted to get a bicycle or buy a car or order an uber or whatever and you had to wait two years you know it's just not five minutes away or you can't buy a car you wait two years that, that's a long time to wait and i'd really like to be in a position where if you are visually impaired or have a parent, family member, loved one, friend, coworker who has a visual impairment that you could say, you can go get a guide dog. Go to Guiding Us for the Blind, you'll get one. You don't have to wait that long a time. And our waiting list can be anywhere from six months to two years. And a lot of it has to do with resources. You know, um, people donate, as I mentioned, you know, $5, $500, $5,000 at a time so that someone they don't even know can get this guide dog. And so... My dream would be to have uh, more resources, more volunteers, so that we can provide these wonderful dogs to people and train them to do what the person needs, specifically, whether it's walking, balancing, running, or helping them find, you know, uh, their slippers in the morning. <laughs> so whatever that might be, to keep them safe and active and mobile and to try to address what I called earlier that public health crisis of people with uh, visual impairments who are blind, which is leading healthy, active lives, um, just like everybody else. How long have you been CEO of Guiding Eyes for the Blind? So this is my sixth year at Guiding Eyes for the Blind, and it's been a whole lot of fun. And what made you want to take the job? I've had a career in the foreign commercial service. I've done a lot of travel with a guide dog. I've traveled the world uh, with a guide dog many times over. And I understand what a difference it would make. I don't think I would have been able to have a career as an international trade specialist if I did not have a guide dog at my side. My cane skills were not phenomenal, but I would land in a city, whether it was Tokyo or Warsaw or Abu Dhabi, and you know, without a dog, I really wouldn't know what to do. It's just I could go anywhere at any time I needed for my job uh, to be able to get around. And so... I raised four kids, have a daughter and three boys with a guide dog, and, um, you know, just really was able to have a full life with a guide dog. And so when it sort of came time to be able to give back and say, you know, what is the number one defining thing in my life that's made a difference, it's really been the dog. And so I wanted to say, how can I learn from that at 25 years of experience of handling a dog, as well as my business experience and say, how can we, you know, develop this wonderful organization that's been around here for a long time to continue to evolve to meet the changing needs of the blind community? And uh, like any community of people, it is changing, as you can see, with uh, blind people wanting to run. What was the hardest thing about getting used to running a nonprofit? I think the hardest thing about running a not-for-profit is realizing that your resources are limited by kind of three factors. The first is your donor base, the second is your volunteer base, and the third is your staff. And so those three things have to work in concert to get ultimately your mission goal, in this case, you know, providing guide dogs. And I think it's very different than a business motive. People are really coming at it because they love what they do or they want to give towards something they love. So it's a very feeling organization, a lot of passionate people coming together, trying to do something. What's the most challenging part of running a passion project? I think the most challenging part of running a passion project is that everybody is passionate about the project. So, uh, but people are passionate differently. And I think that's what also makes it, makes it wonderful. So we have a lot of lively debates about, you know, directional issues, where the focus should be. 
And I think that happens in not-for-profit world. It's not just that profit that's motivating you at all costs. It's saying, look, we all want to help more people. How do we do that? How do we accomplish that? I think it's definitely a democracy when you come to running a not-for-profit. It's not so much, oh, you're the CEO, you make the decisions. Not at all. It's quite the opposite. It's really leading a group of people who are already passionate about something and they already know what they're doing into a direction that's ultimately going to serve your mission. Was it challenging to get the running program off the ground to say there's so much we could do, but we're, we're going to add this capability for these dogs? I, I think it was challenging. I think, first of all, you know, conventional wisdom being that dogs who are guide dogs are not supposed to run. You have to change that conventional wisdom and say, we're going to go to the moon here. This is a moonshot. And then, you know, having some people say, okay, maybe he is out there, but let's see if this is real. I think the benefit of being a blind CEO and having a guide dog is that I said, okay, put me in that spot. And if I truly believe in it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the one who is going to put my own, you know, uh, self and time and passion into showing that this is possible. So I think that helps a lot when you lead by example. I think it always does in any case. But, you know, there were people out there who said this is not possible. It's not safe. It's not uh, something that um, that we believe that the dog can do safely. And so at that point, it's changing hearts and minds and ultimately listening to who you're serving. And when you're listening to people and they're saying, I want to run with my guide dog, but I've been told that I shouldn't and I can't, so I do it anyway. I say, well, how are you possibly doing that and being safe? Because nobody's ever trained that dog to run. So it was listening and we held a focus group out in California of visually impaired runners that run the California International Marathon every year. It is the visually impaired championship. And I, I went out there and I met with a group of visually impaired runners and I said, okay, I hear some of you are doing this kind of under the radar. I'm the CEO of a guide dog school. How can I help you do this safely? And in the room, the majority of the people said that if my guide dog was trained to run, I would train with my guide dog. And that was all I needed to hear was ultimately there's a need. There's a need that's not met. Can we help meet that need as a not-for-profit to get people doing this safely, to keep them healthy and well? And I couldn't imagine a single reason why we wouldn't try. Was there a moment where you realized you had a piece of proof that you could bring back to maybe skeptical folks at your organization to really like move the needle on that? Yeah, a medal at the finish line for the <laughs> dog. <laughs> so when the New York Roadrunners put, you know, a, a race medal on a dog that finished, you know, the half marathon and he was sitting there so proudly, you know, that's a moment where, you know, you not only show people that are so dedicated and passionate about guide dogs, but really at that point, the world that this is possible. Thank you so much. This All right. is really great. Good luck with that beagle. What's her, her name? Her name's Ada. Ada. Be Ada. Beagle, Ada. and I just learned a little bit of Chihuahua. A little Chihuahua in there. Yeah. Okay, beagle Chihuahua beagle named Chihuahua. Ada. Yeah. Love it. That's it for this episode of Working. Again, I'm Shannon Paulus. If you liked this episode, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Jessamine Molly. Special thanks to Justin D. Wright for our ad music. Thanks for listening. Catch us next week for another episode on running.
It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.